0: Coming to you live, live, and podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast, guaranteed to tickle your real estate-loving earholes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with the Best Deal Ever Show, and today I am joined by my good friend Lee Arnold. Lee, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Good. So you are out of. Uh, it's funny we just had this conversation. You were out of Quarter Lane, Idaho, and for the folks that don't know where that is, tell us where you are.
1: Quarter uh, Lane is in the upper panhandle of the state, so I'm about hundred miles south of Canada. Uh, so we are. Wow. We are, we are very, very north. Yes. And you're
0: right on the edge of Washington State too, aren't you?
1: Yes, we are. I'm about 30 miles from Spokane, Washington, which is Eastern Washington. Uh, my office is about 30 miles away from Spokane. So very close. A lot of people don't know the uh, proximity, but uh, it makes for a great metro market for investing.
0: Interesting. Well, and it's also just gorgeous up there too, right? Oh, we love it. This
1: is God's country up here for That's sure. That's right.
0: Now, are you? it's funny because it's just now October and haven't you guys already gotten the snow up there?
1: Yeah, it's funny because my wife and I just got back from Maui like two days ago. We were there nine days. When we left here, it was 80 degrees and we got back and it was 30 degrees and we had two inches of snow. So uh, pretty, pretty interesting how, thing, how quickly things can change. But yeah, that is it's,
0: crazy. It's,
1: it's been cold, man, cold. <laughs>
0: Which is the complete opposite. I'm here in Atlanta and like every day this week, we're breaking like heat temperature
1: records. Oh, man. Stuff. It's like 95 today. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get too hot and humid, come up north, man. We'll I'm, up think, up I'm
0: thinking about it, man. I'm thinking <laughs> about it. So so your your primary market then that you do most of your real estate is Spokane then, or is it kind of one big metro?
1: Well, we do. So we basically have two sides to our company. Uh, one is we are a whole uh, full-time flipper. So we flip about 100 properties a year in the spokane quarterline market, uh, but then we are also a private money lender and we lend nationwide. So for our own flipping business, we're pretty localized. Uh, but on our lending side, we are a nationwide lender. And you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, don't you guys do a good bit of education as well? Yes, we do have an education division and we put on real estate investment seminars around the country, usually two or three every weekend. So we are in a city near you pretty much every week.
0: Wow. And is the education more along the lines of raising capital for, your, for, for the, the private money side of the business or is it just strictly education?
1: Uh, It's strictly education, mainly because what we found is that to reduce risk from a lending perspective, uh, if we can educate the consumer to find better deals, write better um, offers, get properties for cheaper prices, that we can get them better loans, it reduces our risk which ultimately translates to our lenders risk going down, our investors risk going down because we have a much more educated borrower that's getting in and getting out pretty quickly. So uh, that's the nature and the premise of those educational events is just to help people find great deals that financing is readily available for.
0: Yeah. So really, I mean, you're just sourcing borrowers. You're around the country just building a book of business for your, for the lending side.
1: That is a great way to say it. That's exactly right. Very interesting.
0: So yeah, you can, now, I mean, I know your operation's pretty big. Tell us how big the operation is there up in Coeur d'Alene.
1: Here at our corporate office in Coeur d'Alene, we're sitting right now at about 95 employees. Uh, And then we have another office in Spokane where our construction company runs as well as our uh, real estate division. I'm a licensed broker with Keller Williams. So I have a team under me with Keller Williams uh, and we're running about 20 people out of that office.
0: Oh my goodness. That's a serious operation. Uh, And and you're kind yeah. of at the, at the top. Are you CEO or what's your official title?
1: Uh, I am the CEO, but I'm at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, man. That's how I feel most days. I get that. That's
0: so what is your, on the flipping side of the business, now what's your primary business model? Are you just straight up buy, fix, flip?
1: Uh, I would say that predominantly probably 50 to 60% of our deal flow is being sourced at foreclosure auction. Um, the, the remaining 40% is usually direct to seller. So we're doing a lot of direct mail. We're doing a lot of marketing, uh, internet, radio, a lot of outbound phone calls, uh, whatever we can do to get ourselves in front of those borrowers so we can add more deals to the pipeline.
0: Interesting. And you guys are mostly just fixing those too, like full-blown renovations on those? Are you wholesaling anything?
1: Uh, We we approach it from a six-point angle. So on every deal that we find, we will first, of course, put it under contract and then we will attempt to wholesale it because we all know that the highest ROI in the business is wholesaling. Uh, so we attempt to wholesale it first if we're unsuccessful in wholesaling it. If the renovations are minor, we'll then go into what we call a wholesale strategy. Uh, wholetail is defined as any property that requires less than $10,000 in repair. So if we can put in less than ten dollars get it habitable, get it sellable, we'll get it staged, get it listed, get it on the market. If the property is in such disrepair that we can't wholetail it, it needs 25, dollars 30 dollars $50,000 in renovation. Then we go to a retail strategy, which is to sell it at top of market, uh, depending on time of year. And then if we can't sell it for whatever reason, then we will attempt to sell or finance it and carry back the paper. Because as a lender, we're certainly more than willing to write paper. Uh, if we can't write paper, we'll lease option it. And then finally, last, last ditch effort is we'll rent it out. Um, and it's our goal to have as few rentals as possible uh, not that I have anything against rentals. I think positive cash flow is a great business. Uh, but with the market where it is, it's been our position as a company that right now it's important to be flipping and maximizing your returns to build up your cash reserves. Uh, I know we're ta- we're all talking about recession. And we all know that whether it comes this month or next year, it's coming. The market cycles every, every seven to 10 years in most markets. Uh, so my opinion, now is the time to be stockpiling cash. To be ready for the next correction, because there's not a single one of us that was in the business in 2008, 9, and 10 that didn't say, "And I wish I would have had a you know a couple million dollars coming into that turn." Because when you saw what we were buying houses for in 9, 10, 11, and 12, yep. I mean we we're paying 40, 50 cents on the dollar where we're at today. So for my clients, for us, for our investors, through our private equity funds. Uh, we are flipping everything we can just to get that quick cash flow coming in, build up those reserves and be ready for that correction when it hits.
0: Yeah. I can't agree with you more than now's the time to be stockpiling cash. Although I would caution folks that are in the flipping business, don't go out there and get a whole bunch of inventory that's going to take 12 months to flip. That's right. And then all of a sudden you're stuck with your pants down when it turns on. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yep. Quick turn stuff. We try to avoid older inventory. Uh, properties that were built before 1950, because you're inevitably going to be dealing with lath and plaster, you're going to be dealing with knob and tube electrical. And those types of repairs, especially when you consider the shortage we have in the labor markets, you know, getting electricians and plumbers these days is becoming more and more challenging. So when you have these major renovation projects, they can take, you know, 90 to 180 days. And with the market in kind of a an interesting place right now. I wouldn't want to be buying and holding anything that we can't get in and out of in less than 90 days.
0: Yeah. I can't agree with you more. Now tell me about the Spokane market. What sort of price points are you, I mean, I know Seattle obviously is crazy expensive, but on the other side of the, the state, what's it like?
1: Um, it's, it's rising dramatically. So if you look at a year-over-year year appreciable increase just over the last five years, we've seen on average 7 to 8% annualized appreciation. So in five years, we've seen close to 50% increases. And what's causing that is a lot of uh, people migrating to this area because, you know, here in northern Idaho, northern Idaho is very, very conservative, uh, as is eastern Washington. Uh, Western Washington, which, which is where Seattle is located, very liberal, of course, uh, and so we're seeing a lot of people coming into this area just because they're tired of the politics in California. They're tired of the politics in some of their markets. And so we're seeing a rush of people coming up here. Uh, I would say 50 to 60% of them coming out of California. Well, if you sell a 800-square-foot house in California, you're coming up here with a million dollars. And a million dollars in my market is going to buy you a 50-acre estate and a 6,000-square-foot home with a big shop and a pool. Right. Uh, so that's really driving prices up here. Um, in the immediate area, Coeur d'Alene, I moved the office up here eight years ago and where I'm at here in the downtown corridor, uh, I used to be able to buy houses for 120 to 125, uh, five years ago. That same house today is selling for 275 to 300. So it's massive appreciation. And there was a publication just recently that said Idaho is the fastest growing state in the union, uh, driven mostly by Southern Idaho, the Boise Caldwell corridor, uh, but again, it goes back to the conservative values and nature of the state of Idaho. Yeah. And people are surprised when they come up here because it's not the the, the spud farming metropolis that people think when they think of Idaho potatoes. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it has really become a major metropolitan city and especially in uh, Southern Idaho. A lot of tech companies moving over from San Francisco, Austin, Texas, they're all kind of migrating to Boise. So that's really pushing values up pretty aggressively.
0: That's interesting. Now, I can see that there's sort of this migration away from... Uh from California. Obviously that was probably what's driving up the same thing in in Seattle, it's driving up prices there. It's becoming really a a real tech corridor. So you're sort of seeing the same thing in Spokane. That's interesting. Yep. Without the rainy weather,
1: (laughs) right? (laughs) That's exactly right. And we are seeing a lot of people migrating over from Seattle as well, uh, simply because the population there, the traffic. So, you know, with the advent of the internet, thanks Al Gore for the internet. uh, (laughs) That's right. Most of us can work from remotely. So it's no longer you have to live where you work. You can choose where you live and you can commute uh, through your computer and your telephone these days. Sure. So uh, most housing choices, at least from what I'm seeing, are based more on lifestyle choice than I have to live here because of my job. Right. It's a pretty interesting dynamic.
0: Very interesting. So you guys uh, have a pretty big geographic area because you're covering Spokane and you're covering Quarter Lane. Uh, and it sounds like you're doing a pretty good volume at 100 a year. I mean, that's a pretty good clip. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of deals. Is there one deal in particular over the last couple of years that sort of sticks out as your best deal ever?
1: Yeah, there is. And it's a deal and a process and a concept that I stumbled upon accidentally um, because we have these big vans that are wrapped with Pogo Capital. We lend money and they're usually parked out front of our office. So a few years ago, I had a woman walk into my front lobby and say, hey, your van says you buy houses. Will you buy my house? And I met with her and I said, sure, I'd love to buy your house. Tell me the situation. And the situation was that, unfortunately, when she retired from the Air Force, uh, she started dating a gentleman who was into drugs and manufacture of drugs and the sale of drugs. Smart. And, and they got themselves into a lot of trouble. Uh, with the city, so now the city has come in, they both ended up in jail. The house was run down, it was overrun by vagrants, it was dilapidated, and so the city kept finding this woman you know to clear the up the yard, clean up the house, needles everywhere and i didn 't realize at the time of her walking in that this this is a major problem in most markets in america and, you know i've we 've all seen the boarded up dilapidated house, but i didn 't understand the economic opportunity. That exists there, not only from a profit standpoint, but from the ability to change a community and and improve things significantly for the people on that street, the people in that community. Uh, so, as she walked in, I looked at her situation, and the city had fined her and had leaned the property like sixty five thousand dollars. Holy cow! Yeah, and the house as it sat was worth. I mean, I bought the house for twenty six thousand bucks. Uh, we put about $50,000 into it, and then when we sold it, our profit was about $42,000. But the issue was when you looked at the title and you looked at how much she had been fined by the city, how much she had borrowed against this thing, she couldn't sell it for what she owed. Now, we've all heard the term short sale, although it's not nearly as in vogue as it was in 2010, 11, and 12. But short sales are coming back, but short sales are always a viable strategy in any market sure. in a property where the homeowner owes more than the value of the asset. So we went in, we pulled title and I I literally went down and I went and met with the city and code enforcement and everybody that was involved in this transaction. I said, look, you guys, I need you to forgive these liens. I will come in, I will fix up the house, I'll bring it up to FHA standards and I will sell it to an owner occupant that's going to occupy it and use it and do good things with it. But I need you to forgive these liens. Surprisingly, the city was very quick to comply and they said, yeah, Lee, that's great. Uh, They did make me sign something called a performance guarantee, which I had never heard of, uh, but I completely understand. The performance guarantee essentially said, we, the city, will forgive the tens of thousands of dollars in liens and fines that we have against not only this homeowner, but this property, but you have to bring it up to FHA standards within nine months. And certainly I said, yeah, we can do that. That's not a problem. Uh, So we bought it and uh, paid $26,000 for it, put 50 into it. We sold that house for $139,500. Uh, And the great part is, is that Jeanette, uh, the woman that we purchased the house from, even though she had absolutely no equity, she was going to get nothing out of the sale. We were able to negotiate it so that when she left closing, she also received $11,000 out of the closing proceeds. So it was a win-win for everybody. Jeanette got the money she needed to get her life back on track and to get moved into housing that the city hadn't abandoned or vacated or boarded up. Uh the city got this troubled property off of their hands. In a two-year period, they had had over 230 police calls to that property address. Oh so the, c- the city was really excited to have that property off their hands. And the neighborhood as a whole, that house was such a blight on that neighborhood. It was killing neighbors' property values. In fact, uh when I acquired that house, I talked to the neighbor who had purchased his house for $120,000. But because of the condition of the house next door, when he tried to refinance, he couldn't because his property only appraised for $60,000. Oh, geez. When when we got done and got this house sold, we created a comp, uh, cleaned up the neighborhood. His house then appraised within months of us selling ours. His house appraised for $160,000. So the advantage of what we call a lien abatement or a nuisance property is there's literally hundreds and thousands of them in every market across America. Uh, And there's a huge opportunity for us as investors to go in and partner with our cities and align ourselves with our metropolitan areas so that we can clean up blight through partnership, cooperative partnership with our cities uh, to clean up neighborhoods, to make it safer for kids to walk to school. Uh, it's one of my favorite strategies because I haven't seen a lot of people that are utilizing it. Um, it's a tremendous value add to the community. It, it helps the homeowner. It helps the, the neighbors and it helps us as investors, uh, to find good, clean, profitable deals.
0: Oh, the, I, I can't agree with you more. In fact, I know a lot of investors. That's the, that is the list that they hit is code enforcement. Yep. Cause yep. not necessarily even liens, although that would be a great list as well, but just code enforcement. Who's getting, who's getting cited by the city.
1: Exactly right. And what I, and you and I know a lot of the same people, can. what we have a tendency to do when we're dealing with those code enforcement lists is we prioritize the list based on which homeowners have the most equity. And I would encourage people to Mm. not filter the list based on equitable spread, but rather just work every single lead the same. Because if the property's on the code enforcement list, it most likely is in a dilapidated condition. And it, it creates a strong argument for a short sale, both with the underlying lien holder, as well as with the city or the, or the, or the, uh, the metro area that the property is located in. So there's tremendous opportunity to negotiate those liens down so you can get the price to an area that you can afford to buy it and still make a profit. So
0: in this particular case, did she, ha- she had a mortgage on it as well that you were able to negotiate down?
1: Yes, she had a mortgage on it as well. So we dealt with the mortgage. She had a second mortgage. She had liens from the city. She had, uh, we have something here called SNAP, which is the Spokane Neighborhood Area Protection, where if the house is in disrepair, the city will pay to come in and fix it up fix the heater, make the property habitable. Uh, and when they do that work, they place liens against the property as well. So we were dealing literally with eight different lien holders on this property and they were all willing to negotiate just so that something positive could happen with this property.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At some point they have to come to the table. Otherwise it just sits there and nobody does anything and they lose all their money. So might as well get a little bit of something. Right. How, how did it work that she was able to actually walk away from the table with money? That's pretty rare in a short sale situation.
1: Well, I basically told everybody involved that if we didn't get Jeanette some money, the homeowner on this house, that she wasn't going to sign, you know, because ultimately the homeowner's in control until either they sign their rights away through sale or they lose rights through tax sale or auction. Well, both of those strategies or or those opportunities were going to take the city two and three years to get to the tax sale status or for the underlying lien holders to initiate and, and execute on foreclosure. So they were willing to forgive those debts because it expedited the process and allowed the house to get into the hands of somebody that would do positive things with it.
0: That's pretty amazing. That's pretty rare that they're willing to let the, you know, the, the seller actually walk away from the table with some money. So kudos to yeah. you for some serious negotiating. It's funny, <laughs> when you had mentioned to me, you know, the kind of the, the state of affairs when she was in the house, first thing I think of is, was he, is there a chance that it was a meth house? Was it, a, was he cooking meth? And what did you have to do in terms of abating that?
1: Great question. Yeah, most of these code enforcement houses, I shouldn't say most, but I would say at least 60% of them, uh, we are dealing with either the the use of illicit drugs on those properties and in some cases, the manufacture of drugs on those properties. But it's just like anything else. you got to take it through the, me- the mediation process or the mitigation process. Uh, if there's manufacture of meth or mold, uh, it's kind of the same process for either. But you're looking on average anywhere from $2,500 to $8,500 in cleanup. Mm -hmm. Uh, as I'm sure everybody probably knows, the remediation costs on use is significantly lower than the remediation on manufacture. Mm -hmm. But the advantage of these types of properties is, even though they're boarded up, as we're negotiating with the city and working to create positive solutions, the city will give us the ability to go in there, bring our inspectors, bring our contractors. So we know going in exactly what it's going to cost us to fix it up which is another big advantage over waiting for that house to go to auction where we would not be able to gain access to it. It's boarded up. We can't get in um, and really see what's happening there. So even though these properties do go to auction, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity to get to it before the sale so that you have the ability to go in and check those things out.
0: Yeah. And use, honestly, use it as a negotiating tool because yes. there's a stigma with a meth house or a, you know, a house where the drugs are manufactured. You want to turn around that and take that to the negotiating table. Use right. it to your advantage. You know what you can, you know, remediate it for. They, they probably are completely scared of the fact that they have this asset on their books now.
1: Right. And one other thing I want to mention, Ken, just for your audience is the other advantage of this strategy more than any other strategy I've seen or that I work is when you're, when you're taking care of blighted properties in cooperation with the city and you do a great job, it's, it doesn't take very many of these before the city is actually calling you and saying, hey, We have a situation over in this neighborhood at this property. Can you go talk to that homeowner and see if you can work with them as well? So from that first deal, I've done dozens of these properties in cooperation with the city because they really need help eliminating the blight and the issue. So wow. it, creates, it creates an amazing stream of repeat business because you now have a pretty, pretty important client, which is the city that you're doing business
0: in. Great point. Yeah. It's, you build a decent reputation for yourself in a city. You build those relationships and all of a sudden you're getting deals from it. But let's go back to how you originally got the deal. So this lady actually just saw one of your vans with the We Buy Houses on the side of it.
1: Yep. Sarban walked into the office and admittedly uh, uh, I was not doing anything in code enforcement before she walked in. Yeah. I, I had no idea that there was a list. So yeah. uh, that would have been useful information. But since she walked into my office and this is now going back four years, uh, code enforcement has become one of our main acquisition strategies. Interesting. The other thing I'll mention is that most metropolitan cities with a population of greater than 50,000 have a code enforcement hearing. And in my market, they're held every single week. So track down in your city where those code enforcement hearings are being held, what time they're being held, and go. Hmm. Because I'm in, a, I'm in a metro market of about 500,000 people, and I'm always fascinated that when I go to these code enforcement meetings, I'm the only guy there. And really? here, you got the city, and they're showing you all the addresses of the properties that are on their radar that they're trying to do work on. Uh, I mean, it's like fish in a barrel, one of the, yeah. one of the most awesome strategies I've seen.
0: Very interesting. It's funny. I don't think we have hearings necessarily in, at least in our municipalities, but there's definitely a list. Yeah. The thing is I'm in a pretty competitive market in Atlanta. There's a lot of guys hitting that list, but if you're in a you know, slightly uh, smaller market, like a you know, medium metro, like a Spokane, then golly, if you're the only guy there, you're right. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Right. Um, talk to us for a second about how you funded it. I know it wasn't you know, any sort of massive deal, but uh, you, you ended up
1: having about 76,000
0: in it. Is that about right? 26 plus fifty. Yep.
1: That's about right. Yeah. With Kogo Capital, which is our nationwide lending arm, uh, we can lend up to 90% of your acquisition and 100% of, of your rehab. So that allows us, you know, with $25,000 acquisition, it's $2,500 down and then Coco Capital will finance the entire balance. Um, and that's the other thing. I was just on a phone the other day with a guy that had gotten to one of our events who years ago, uh, he said, Lee, I used to do a lot of business in code enforcement. He said, the challenge I had, though, is that a lot of these code enforcement properties are located in areas where most lenders won't lend. He said, so when I found out that Coco Capital not only teaches lien abatement and code enforcement as a strategy, but also provides the funding to acquire those assets, he said, I immediately jumped back into the real estate business because there's thousands of these homes and you guys are willing to finance them. So, um, that's where we got the money, Ken, was through our lending arm, Coco Capital.
0: And what sort of interest rate do you guys typically, are obviously you lend to yourself, you'd probably get at a better rate, but what's, <laughs> what's typical? Uh,
1: our rates start at one, one point in loan origination at 8% interest.
0: Dude, that's uh, strong. That's really strong.
1: And, yeah. And we will, make, we will match or beat any competitor's price. So if you've got pricing less than that, bring it to us. We will beat it.
0: Man, that's phenomenal. So at the end of the day, you exited it just to a retail buyer, just went on right. the market. Somebody bought it. I mean, that's still a really darn good price for a fully rehab house. What 139 is what you sold it for. Yep.
1: 139 five. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's super affordable. And, uh, and what did you make on that? Is it uh $42,307 and three cents.
0: That's total net net at the end of the day after all the commissions and everything got paid out. Yep. That's pretty darn solid, man. So, so, I mean, I, I think I already know the answer to this, but, how did this change your business?
1: Um, it gave us the ability to focus on our core principle as an as an organization. Uh, if you ever walk into my office, Ken, you're invited to host you and your wife here in Coeur d'Alene, come on up. Uh, but on the on the wall in our front lobby, it says we get more of what we want by helping others get more of what they want. So it's really the mission that drives us. And I didn't realize prior to this first deal the tremendous opportunity we have as investors to be a blessing to homeowners that are in a situation where they don't, they can't see the light. I mean, they're upside down, they can't sell the house for what they owe, and they have no idea what their options are. So what this deal did to my organization is it gave us another opportunity to serve our community, to to serve our neighbors, and to be a blessing to other people while still being profitable. Uh, And and that's why it's truly one of my favorite strategies.
0: That's amazing. You know, it's funny, my wife, Anita, that is, I think she wants to trademark it, be a blessing. She actually has cups and hats and everything written with be a blessing. That is completely her, her life mission right now is to be a, mission, to be, to be a blessing. And you That's know, awesome. to, to your point, uh, it's funny how many new investors, you know, they, they sense blood in the water and they start licking their chops and it's, such, it's the wrong way to go about it because we right. really, at the end of the day, should be problem solvers. And whether That's we right. make money or not, it, it always will build a better business if you're just right. in it to help people, not just to take advantage of people.
1: That's right. Yeah. If you can focus on how is my effort going to bless this person in the absence of profit, you know, that's when I believe God will truly begin blessing your business. When it's not about the money, rather it's about the benefit and the blessing that you can transfer to other people.
0: Yeah. And like I said, at the end of the day, it really was a win-win. You guys, you made profit. There's nothing wrong with making profit from the deal, but you actually lifted her situation. She walked away from the table with money all these debtors and credit, they, they got out of a you know, house that they didn't want to be part of. And at the end of the day, everybody won. That's right. they still profited from it.
1: Right. And I think for a lot of investors, Ken, the reason they steer away from this particular side of the strategy, as in looking at properties that are over encumbered, is admittedly, it's a lot of work Yeah. You know, to, to go through and negotiate with eight different lien holders. It is a lot of work. And there is no guaranteed paycheck at the end of that effort. Yeah. But if, if the paycheck is the focus, then, then I don't know that you're going to be truly blessed in your business because I think you're focused on the wrong things. Yeah. If, you, if you can approach every deal, not from the standpoint of how much money am I going to make, but how many people am I going to serve? I believe that's when your business will start truly being blessed.
0: Yeah. And that is a fantastic word to end on. Lee, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a fantastic
1: one. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ken. I appreciate it.
0: Take care. All right, sit tight, you deal farm listeners. We've got more coming up in just a second. But for right now, I want you to do something for me. I want you to pick up your phone. Now, if you're driving, just wait till you get to the next stoplight. I want you to go to your Amazon app. I want you to type in Profit Like the Pros. You'll see my paperback book, published by Bigger Pockets, come up. Okay, now just hit the order button. See how easy that was? Here's the deal in just two days, you're going to be enjoying 25 amazing stories of seasoned investors sourcing and funding and profiting from all types of real estate investments. Okay. Back to the show, except in this segment, we're going to talk about the deals that didn't go so well. Hope you enjoy. All right. So I am joined with my good friend, Lee Arnold. Lee, talk to me about your worst
1: deal ever. Oh man, Ken. Worst deal ever. Um, I started building luxury homes, uh-huh. uh, on a ski resort. Oh, boy. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and my plan was to build these 14,000 square foot houses. Uh, I started building three of these, uh, the dirt, just the lot, six tenths of an acre. I was paying a million eight just for the dirt. Oh my gosh. My pre-construction cost was eight and a half million dollars, but my post-construction appraisal was 22 million. So I'm looking at roughly a ten million dollar profit on three houses. So I'm sitting here going, okay, I build three houses, I make thirty million bucks. Life is good. Uh, I didn't watch the market. Oh and, no! And the market for luxury ski and ski out homes just tanked, uh, and we ended up having to short sell those properties off. Uh, so what was a post construction appraisal at twenty two million? I short sold the house for three point two. Oh. And what were you yep. in it for? Oh, seven and a half million dollars just on the first one that we'd come out <laughs> oh, of the ground. Gosh. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> That's so, brutal. so needless to say, what I learned from this is if you're going to flip, if you're going to do new construction, build a product that the masses can buy. Yeah. So our, our rule internally as a company is we don't build or flip anything that exceeds the FHA cap for that market So the FHA cap is 350 or 412 or whatever that number is in your market. Uh, we will not do business on any piece of real estate that exceeds that FHA cap because that's 85% of your buyers are going to be qualified for FHA or conventional financing. So while it was an incredibly painful experience, uh, it was probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned.
0: Sure. What year was that? Was that right at the downturn?
1: Uh, we, we came out of ground in 2007. And okay. we, were coming to, we were coming to market in winter of eight. Oh, I had yeah. just bought a full spread in ski magazine for this house. Uh, and, and that was in July of eight. And then as we know, Lehman and Bear Stearns and everybody started going down in August and September. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> oh, uh, God. Yeah. So even though, you know, that was, that was 10 years from now or 11 years from now, it's still burned deeply in my brain. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, that's not something you recover from. This might take the cake because I've had some, some pretty big whoppers for worse Uh-oh. deals. But when you're uh, short selling and, and, under, and really slashing by $4 million on a single property, that's pretty impressive.
1: Well, <laughs> I, you know, uh, I appreciate the award, but I… I,
0: I <laughs> that's amazing.
1: I'd rather not be the recipient of it. Admittedly, <laughs>
0: that's hilarious. You know what's? It's so. It seems to be the common thread, though, with a lot of these worst deals. It's when somebody steps out of their their normal buy box and they try to yeah. do something different. They see some, some big dollar signs. They're like, "Man, I'm going to try this." There's some big, and almost inevitably, it's because it's not what they know. It's out of you know they're swinging for the fences, right. and that's when they end up getting burned.
1: Right. Yeah. And stay in your lane, man. That's what yeah. I learned is stay in your lane. Uh, and it's so easy, especially as the, as the market's just been going crazy and booming. It's so easy, especially for investors and entrepreneurs, because we have self-diagnosed ADD typically. Sure. Uh, so it's the squirrel syndrome. Ooh, I want to try that deal. I want to do that deal. You know, uh, I, uh, a wise investor told me, Lee, he said, it's not always about the properties you buy that makes you profitable or successful. It's about the properties you say no to. Totally. Um, and I've, I've said no to a lot more than I ever used to because of that.
0: Yep. Yep. It's funny. I had a professor, I got my master's at Georgia tech and one of my professors is actually a, a really well-known developer in Atlanta. And he used to say that the best deal he ever did was one that he never did
1: Yeah,
0: because <laughs> he, best. you learn, especially as a developer to pass on the big ones. Cause right. you know, they either make a lot of money or they lose a lot of money, but you're, you're a hundred percent right. You just got to learn to say no. That's wise counsel. Absolutely. Yep. That's awesome. Lee, I appreciate you being uh fully transparent with us on that, on those massive losses, but Hey, we've all been there and we're better for it, right? That's right. That's right. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Thanks, Ken. Have a good one. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the best deal ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters that will not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. Whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.